You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Yeah, thank you. That's appropriate. My name is Jamin. If you've got a Bible, turn to the book of James. We will be in James chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. Uh, To those of you who are here and you call Citizens Church home, welcome. To those who are new, uh, if you're visiting us, uh, my name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Thank you, all of you who uh, braved the cold to be here this morning. Uh, To those of you who are watching online, uh, wherever you are, if you're watching from home, welcome. Um, This Sunday is the first Sunday of a new sermon series in the book of James. And this morning, I just want to spend all of our time uh, answering a question. And the question is just why? Why James? Uh, Why this book uh, right now for our church? You know, I I think uh, about our church a lot, and our church is made up of of you. So I think about you a lot. And by you, I mean those of you who've been here a long time and and those of you who are, you know, relatively new, trying to connect still. And by you, I mean those who uh, love the Lord and have been believers for a long time and those who maybe are not sure what you believe and you're just checking things out. And, And by you, I mean those who... Uh, have fresh affection for Jesus and those who, who are a little bit more apathetic and should care more than you should. I know that our church is made up of a diverse uh, kind of story and spiritual story in relationship to God. And, and I think about you. I pray for you. I talk about you a lot. And, and I think about our church outside of, uh, outside of Carrie and Asher and Adeline and Ayla Roller. No one gets my attention um, like Citizens Church. So I think of my family first and then you, and then the Dallas Cowboys, and that's pretty much it. Uh, My son asked me the other day, we were on our way home from a basketball game, we had a long uh, trip, about an hour in the car together, and he just said, hey dad, what's what's your worst job, and then what's your dream job? I said, my worst job, worst job I've ever had was uh, being a door-to-door salesman. I spent a summer selling security systems door-to-door in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I, and I hated it. I just, I hated every minute. I couldn't handle all the rejection is what it was. Um, I said, "My, my dream job is, is pastor at Citizens Church. Really, it's my dream job. I, I love being a pastor here. I'm honored uh, to do it. There's much less rejection in this job. And so um, I, I say all that to say as a pastor who thinks about you a lot and loves his job, one of the most significant things about all this for me is, is the sermons <laughs> and deciding what sermon series really, maybe the, one of the biggest decisions I make in my role is what our sermon series will be. And I don't make those in isolation. I make them with others. But uh, coming into a, a Sunday like this, at the beginning of a new series, it's just um, it's a big deal to me. I try to think deeply about it and seek the Lord on it. And as somebody who tries to be thoughtful about these things, I just want to offer the why. Why, James? Why that book right now in the life of our church? And I'll offer a few answers. Here's the first answer. Um, because it's in the Bible. And that's not a throwaway answer. It's it's an opportunity to remind us of something. Um, The primary way that God speaks to us is through his written word. Uh, God is a God who has spoken and still speaks. And the primary way that he speaks to us is through his written word. We don't believe that God is some sort of silent force behind the world who created everything and then just steps back with his hands off and just watches it run. We also don't believe that God is cruel, like... um, like how cruel of God if he expected us to know him and, and held us accountable for knowing him, but, but did not make himself knowable. There was a, a Roman emperor named Caligula. He was a tyrant 
which is what you'd expect with a name like Caligula. And he would create these laws and he would post these laws on the, on the highest um, parts of the city. He would post them on the highest columns in Rome where they were impossible to read. Nobody knew what the laws were. And then he would punish people for breaking the laws that they did not know. And they did not know them because they were not knowable. And, and God's just not like that. God is, he wants us to know him and he wants us to know his will, and he wants us to know his character, and he wants us to know his story. And so instead of posting all that up high where no one can read it, he brings that down low. And he has made himself most clearly knowable in the person of Jesus, who's the image of the invisible God, who came from heaven down to the ground of earth that we might know God. And then uh, in his written word, it's all about Jesus. The Old Testament points towards him. The New Testament is about his life and his teaching and his miracles and his death and his resurrection and his reign and his return. And it's, it's the primary way that God speaks to us. And the main subject of God's word is Jesus, our Savior. Um, and that means a lot of things. Uh, one of them is, is this. There's nothing more important to talk about on a Sunday when we gather together. It's why we preach the Bible. It's why we offer uh, Bible classes that teach the Bible. It's why our students, when they gather, they learn the Bible. It's why our kids right now are in rooms with friends and goldfish and toys, and at some point they're going to learn the Bible. Look, you don't need to come in here and hear my opinions. I'm just not that interesting. And you don't need to come in here and hear 10 tips on how to succeed in the new year. Your needs are greater than that. We need to come in here and hear the very words of our glorious God because in them we know God and in them we are changed and challenged and encouraged and comforted. And these words never lie and these words are never empty. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. And so James is in the Bible and the Bible is God's way of making himself known to us. Uh, and so that's why, that's why James. Here's another answer. This will take most of our time this morning. Another reason why James is because it was written by one of Jesus's family members, which says something really beautiful about Jesus. Um, Mark 6, it says Jesus went to his hometown and he teaches there. So he went to the, to the city that he grew up in, the town that he grew up in, and among all the people who watched him grow up, and uh, he teaches, and the people don't like it. It says this in Mark 6, verses 3 and 4. This is their response to his teaching. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus had a family of origin, like all of us do. Uh, so the Son of God eternally preexisted as the second person of the Trinity. That's true. And when God takes on flesh in the person of Jesus, he's born into a family. And so, you know, if you and I were to go to coffee and the question was, you know, tell me about your home life growing up, tell me about you know, the family that you were born into and raised by, you would talk about that. You would talk about mom, you would talk about dad, you would talk about stepmom, you'd talk about stepdad, uh, depending on whatever that looked like for you. And then if you were an only child, you would talk about being an only child. And if you had brothers and sisters, you would talk about your brothers and sisters. And then you would talk about, you know, where you lived and what your parents did for a living. And then if you were to ask me, I've got my own answer to all those questions. Um, I'd tell you about my mom and my dad who are still married. And I would tell you about uh, the oldest sibling is my sister, Leah, 
And after Leah, uh, my brother Luke was born, they were born in the mid 80s, Leah and Luke. Everyone thought my mom and dad were huge Star Wars fans, but they said it it was because of the Bible, not Star Wars, and it was probably both. Uh, Then I was born unplanned. I was born a year and four days after my older brother, so I was a surprise, but not an accident, as my grandma would tell me. Um, Then four years after me was my little brother, John Mark. He was born, and that was our home, mom and dad and four kids, Leah, Luke, Jamin, and John Mark. My mom and dad, uh, my dad uh, worked multiple jobs uh, when I was growing up. He was a painter and a pool cleaner and a salesman, and through all that, he was a bivocational pastor for uh, some of those years. My mom stayed home. We lived, we moved around a little bit, but lived mostly in Texas. You have your, what was your home like growing up answer. I have my, what did your family look like growing up answer. And Jesus could answer that question as well. Uh, like us, Jesus was raised in a family. And if we asked him, he would talk about his mom, Mary. And then he would talk about Mary's husband, Joseph, who was not his biological father because Jesus' conception and birth were the miraculous work of God. But he was called, in, throughout the New Testament, he's called Joseph's son. And the children of Joseph and Mary were Jesus' brothers and sisters. The passage names four brothers and multiple sisters. We're not sure how many, but there's more than one. So Mary and Joseph had a big family. Jesus was a big brother to a lot of siblings. They grew up in Nazareth. Jesus in this passage is called a carpenter. That's what Joseph did for a living, and so that's what he trained and raised Jesus to do as a vocation. And years of his life, most of what we get in the New Testament about the life of Jesus is covering the three years of his ministry and his teachings and his miracles and all of that. But most of his life, at least until his late 20s, he lived in Nazareth, worked as a carpenter, the firstborn of Mary, the oldest brother of a lot of brothers and sisters. James is Mary and Joseph's first child after Jesus. So he's the oldest of Jesus's siblings, the closest in age to Jesus. It means this, James and Jesus grew up together. That James wrote this letter. The James of verse one, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the younger brother, grew up in Nazareth, lived in the same house, ate with, walked with, slept with, played with Jesus. So someone from Jesus's nuclear family wrote a letter about Jesus that made it into our Bible. And it speaks to two things about Jesus. That you get other places in the Bible, but are just, are just uniquely special to see them through this kind of sibling lens. That James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter about Jesus. It speaks to Jesus's character, and it speaks to his kindness. Here's what I mean by character. Think with me about what you know about the people you grew up with. Think with me about what you know about the people that you lived under the same roof with growing up. If you have siblings, if you spent your life in the same house, what kind of knowledge do you have of them? Well, you know things about them that most people don't know. Greater proximity means greater visibility into people's lives. And the closer we are to people, the more of them we see. And it's really hard to hide who you are at home. It's really hard to hide who you are at home. It's why the closer someone is to you, the more weight their words carry, right? Um, If somebody was to email our elders and say, hey, I just met Jamin for the first time. We talked for a few minutes, and I think he's a really mean person. That would matter. That would require follow-up and probably some awkward conversations and... um, But it's different if Carrie, my wife, emails our elders and says, hey, I think Jamin's a really mean person. That's different. That would hurt my feelings, first of all. And then second, it would hold a lot more weight, right? Because she sees me in the home. No one's closer to me than than she is. And, And if that was her experience of me, 
If that was her testimony about my character, if those are her words about me, that would demand a lot of attention because you can't hide who you are at home. You think about the things that we've all experienced, that we've just experienced way too much of, where there's some sort of famous person, somebody that maybe you admire or people think highly of them, and then all of a sudden the scandal comes out about them. And it's, it's, they're not who they said they were. Here are all the things that were true about them behind closed doors. They were a different person. And so often the voices behind that scandal are family. It's the spouse, it's the parents, it's the uh, kids, it's the siblings. It's, it's those who would say, hey, here's what they hid from everybody else, but you can't hide that at home. Everything about Jesus, everything about Jesus, his uh, claim to be Lord and Messiah in Christ, his death, his identity, it all hinges on him having the perfect character of God that he claimed to have. It, it hinges on him embodying everything that he said about himself. It hinges on him being holy and self-controlled and loving and pure and sacrificial and humble and perfectly righteous. And if he wasn't those things, who would know? James. He had more years of close proximity to Jesus than any other disciple, anyone else who wrote the Bible. Uh, James is written early. It's, it's likely written before 50 AD. That would make, if it was written before 50 AD, that would make it the earliest New Testament letter and the first Christian writing of any kind. It means that this letter went out to the first generation of Christians. So those who were at Pentecost, part of the very first churches, and it's at a time where Christi Christianity is growing. It's this explosive growth of Christianity. And Christianity is growing along this message. Jesus is Lord. And people are believing that, and the movement around that claim is gaining ground. And if Jesus was not who he said he was, this would be the time for James, the brother of Jesus, to write and say, hey, hold, hold on, you've missed it. Like, uh, let me tell you what Jesus is really like. If anybody at this time in Christianity's history was sitting on a scandal, James was. And so he could write, and verse 1 reads, James, the brother of Jesus, guys, Jesus is not who he said he is. James, the brother of Jesus, he was great and all, but he's not God. That's crazy. James, the brother of Jesus, I wrote you this letter. It's a long list of sins and hypocrisy and inconsistency that I've seen. He hid it from everybody else, but he couldn't hide it at home. And that's not what we get. Instead, we get this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't even say anything about being Jesus' brother. He is so convinced from his vantage point, his, his closest intimacy, his proximity, he's so convinced of the claims of Jesus and the character of Jesus, he says, more than he's my brother, he's my Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he pins those words, his mind holds a lifetime of memories with Jesus. And every single one of those memories, times at the table, walking together, learning together, living together, every single memory passes the Jesus is Lord test. Here's how Keller says it. The moral grandeur, the quality of life, the words and the deeds and the wisdom and the consistency and the character of Jesus Christ must have been unparalleled for somebody to live with him from the time he was little and to say, this is the Lord. Why James? Because we need to hear or remember or be confident in this fact. Jesus is pure 
and righteous and possesses unparalleled character. There is no hidden scandal waiting to come out about Jesus. I know many in the room have been hurt by people claiming to be something they're not, claiming to be someone they're not. I know many in the room know the pain of Christian pastors and Christian leaders who failed morally and lacked the character they claimed to possess. Would you hear this? Jesus will never disappoint you like that. He is as pure and righteous and loving as he claims to be. Those in the best position to call him a fraud instead call him a Lord, Savior, Christ. Jesus is the kind of person whose younger brother says, I've seen it all, and the closer you get, the better he becomes. We can trust Jesus. That James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this letter speaks to Jesus' character. It also speaks to Jesus' kindness. Here's James's story. Uh, in John chapter 7, verses 3, 4, and 5, what happens in John chapter 6 is Jesus has this really low point in his ministry. A lot of people leave. And so his brothers, at the very beginning of 7, uh, said to him this. This is verse 3. His brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. So his little brothers are trying to coach him. Here's how to Here's how to fix things. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Then verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. For most of Jesus' ministry, those three years of his teaching and, and healing, James was not a follower. James did not believe. He doubted Jesus. And we don't know what that looked like. We don't know a lot about their relationship. Really, only all that we get is this sentence, not even his brothers believed him. And then we don't hear about James again until the book of Acts. And in Acts 15, there's this thing happening where there's this, it's called the Jerusalem Council. It's this really important moment for the church. And they have some decisions to make that really shape the, the way that, um, that things move forward. And at that meeting, it's James who leads. He speaks and everyone listens. And by the end of the book of Acts, he's the primary leader of the Jerusalem church, the first Christian church. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's not another one of the 12. It's James. So he kind of comes out of nowhere. What happened? From John 7, even his brothers didn't believe, to Acts 15, leading the church of Jesus, what happened? James got to spend time with his resurrected brother. That's what happened. 1 Corinthians 15, there's a long list of people who got to see Jesus after he came back to life. It says this in verse 4. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Jesus dies, he comes back to life three days later, defeats death, and people get to see him. He spends time with a handful of people. Most of that is in groups of people, large groups of people. It mentions only a few who got one-on-one -on -one time with the resurrected Jesus, and James is one of them. Then he appeared to James. It's Jesus and James, just the two of them like it was so often growing up. And we don't know where Jesus met him. Maybe Jesus met him in Jerusalem. Maybe Jesus met him back home in Nazareth. Maybe Jesus met him in a place that held a lot of memories for them. When Jesus meets Peter on the beach in John 21, Jesus surrounds that time with all kinds of significant details. It's a charcoal fire. It's right by Capernaum where Peter's from and was called into ministry. So maybe Jesus does something like that with James. It would be like Jesus to meet James in a way that held a lot of meaning for both of them. And we don't know what's said. Jesus knew about his brother's doubt. Surely at some point, James says, I'm so sorry. And surely Jesus says, I love you. 
I forgive you. Here's what we do know. The resurrected Jesus pursued his doubting brother and it changed James's life. Changed his life. We know how the conversation didn't go. Jesus didn't show up and say, hey, you thought you knew better. How dare you? Don't ever step foot in one of my churches. He didn't say that. You know that proximity thing works both ways? Growing up with someone, that closeness. James saw Jesus up close. Jesus saw James up close. Knew all the ways that he fell short. Knew all the kinds of embarrassing things that family members know about one another. He knows those, not just in his deity, he knows those in his experience, in his humanity. And he doesn't show up and say, little brother, you're ruined. I've seen the worst of you. I came to tell you that I have no use for you. You have no future. No, the risen Jesus, scars in his wrists and his feet, wrapped in resurrected flesh, pursues his brother, and on that day becomes more to him than his brother, becomes his savior and his Lord, and it changes James's life. He went on from here to be a leader of the church, an elder in the Jerusalem church, his wisdom and his leadership guiding people through conflict and persecution and suffering. He became a man of character like his brother. If you read any sort of history on James, you'll see that James has a nickname. His nickname is James the Just. He spent so much time kneeling in the temple and praying that historians say his knees calloused over and became hard like the knees of a camel. And as he knelt, he would worship God and he would pray for the forgiveness of others. And so it says this, from his excessive righteousness, he was called James the Just. His life ended in AD 62. He was martyred, he was killed by the same kinds of people who killed Jesus in the same city where Jesus died. A historian named Eusebius describes one account of James's death like this. Christianity's spreading, it's Passover, and the enemies of the gospel hate that Christianity is spreading. And so they take James, they arrest him, they take him up to the very top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, the very roof of this massive structure, and they call this audience around him, and they tell James to tell them to stop following Jesus. And instead, James preaches the gospel. He says, Jesus is in heaven at God's right hand and he's gonna come again on the clouds. And so in anger, they throw him off the temple to the ground and he doesn't die. And so in the street, they stone him and club him. And as he is being beaten to death, you know what he does? He prays for the forgiveness of those who are killing him. Does that remind you of anyone? 30 years after Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. On the same streets, James prays the same prayer. The one who at one point refused to follow Jesus in life followed him in death. And James lived that kind of life of justice and character and sacrifice all because, all because the risen Jesus pursued him in love. It changed his life. Why James? Because his story reminds us that the same way that Jesus was kind to James, Jesus is kind to us. The resurrected Jesus knows everything about you, everything about me. He has that kind of proximity that's even closer than what our family members know about us. He knows everything. He sees it all so clearly. And yet in his kindness, he loves and pursues us still. You know why? because he wants to make us into something beautiful. He wants us to be a part of what he's doing. He welcomes us into his spiritual family. He forgives us of our doubt and our sin, and he wants to make us just and brave and pure. 
And so James's story doesn't end in, in, in the John 7 verse. He didn't believe. It didn't end in the worst line about him. And with Jesus, ours doesn't end that way either. Our story isn't marked by the worst line about us. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is kind to us, to love us and pursue us and change us. Why James? Here's what we need to know about the letter. The letter of James is the words of Jesus in the voice of wisdom written to make whole followers of Christ. It's the words of Jesus in the voice of wisdom written to make whole followers of Jesus. What likely happened is James is pastoring this church in Jerusalem in the months and years after Jesus' resurrection, and Christians in Jerusalem start getting arrested and killed. One of their friends named Stephen, if you remember, he is stoned to death in the street, and so they scatter because of the persecution, because of the suffering. And they leave Jerusalem and they go to all these different cities. So in verse one, we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. That 12 tribes of the dispersion, it could be a general way to talk about Jewish Christians, but likely it's more specific than that. What James is doing is James is writing to people who were once part of his church, who had to move because of persecution. And he cares about them and he thinks about them and he loves them. And so they had to go and they had to find a new home somewhere else. And so he writes this letter and the letter is designed to be passed around from church to church, from city to city. He cannot pastor them in person anymore. And so he tries to pastor them through this letter. And here's what the letter sounds like. It sounds like Jesus. It's the words of Jesus. There is more overlap between the teachings of Jesus in the letter of James than any other book in the Bible. There are at least 19 overlaps just between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. So in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches about prayer. In James 1.5, James talks about prayer just like Jesus does. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches about anger. James 1.20, James talks about anger the same way that Jesus does. He talks like somebody who spent so much time with Jesus that Jesus' words became his own. One theologian said this, there is scarcely a thought in the epistle which cannot be traced to Christ's personal teaching. So much of James then is us hearing the words of Jesus through the pen of his brother who heard these words most of his adult life. It also sounds like wisdom. So James is written in the style of wisdom. Some have called James the Proverbs of the New Testament. And what that means is it means you get a lot of metaphors, a lot of imagery, and a lot of short proverbial truths. So if you see behind me, or you see around the building uh, images on the screen. You'll see them displayed throughout the church. They are the images that come right out of the book of James. It's a crown of life. It's a flower that withers. It's a mirror. It's the fruit that's harvested. We hear all of that in James because that's how wisdom talks. Wisdom speaks illustratively because it's one thing, it's one thing to say, hey, um, you should watch what you say. You should be careful how you talk. It's a whole other thing to say. Words have so much power that the tongue is like that small fire that burns a whole forest down. And we get that in James. It's one thing to say, hey, guys, money can't make you happy. It's another thing to say, if you put your trust in riches, you will wither like a flower in the summer heat. And you get that in James. Wisdom is earthy. That's wisdom's voice. It, it, it's on the ground. It wants to grab our attention. James has 54 imperatives in it. An imperative is a command, it's an instruction. James is a five-chapter book. It has 54 imperatives. It means James doesn't mess around. 
There's nothing indirect about James. One commentator called James a beautifully crafted punch in the gut. So he says things like, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry because human anger doesn't lead to godly things. He says things like, you know what causes fights around you? It's the fight within you. The fight in here is causing the fight out there. And that's how wisdom talks. It's illustrative. It grabs our attention. It's to the point. You might remember we spent a year and a half in a wisdom series and wisdom has a posture. It's low. To get wisdom, you have to lower yourself under its demand. It's not just hear it, but be shaped by it. Wisdom is not about information. It's about being changed by what you know. So that's James. It's the words of Jesus, the voice of wisdom. For what? To what effect? What, what James's pastoral heart, what is he hoping the words of Jesus, the voice of wisdom does in the life of his church members? As we read here in 2024 in Plano, Texas, what is it that God wants to do? The words of Jesus, the voice of wisdom, what does that want to accomplish in my life and in your life? It wants to make us whole. James says it like this in verse four. We'll look more at this next week. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the last why, James, and then I want to invite us to, to pray together towards this end. Whether you have been a Christian for a little bit of time or you've been a Christian for most of your life, the natural pull of the heart is towards a compartmentalized relationship with God. The natural pull of the heart is towards some sort of compromised relationship to Jesus where there are a set of things in my life and a whole side of my life that I'm happy to offer to God. And then there are these other things that we keep to ourselves, these other sides that we keep hidden or that we think we'll do a better job of controlling and answering. It's like that moment, maybe you've had this moment when, with a child when they have something in their hand that maybe they don't want you to see or you know that they shouldn't have and you say, show me your hand and so they show you the empty one and they put the other one, they keep it closed behind their back and we do that, we do that kind of thing with God. The natural bent of the human heart is to do that with God. We offer to him what we're okay giving up but we keep hidden the things that we wanna hold on to, the things we wanna control. That looks different depending on who you are. Maybe it's, it's okay, um, God, here's my marriage or here are the ways that I want your word to inform my home and my work and here's my confession and, and, and here's how I want forgiveness. But behind, I'll hold on to my past or I'll hold on to my relationship to money or I'll hold on to my foolish ways of dealing with emotion or I'll hold on to my idol of control. And what this kind of relationship does with God is it makes us a fractured people, makes us a compromised people. And so God in his kindness what he'll do in our life is he wants to go after not just what we offer, but what we withhold. Because he doesn't just want parts of our life to look like Jesus, he wants all of our life to look like Jesus. Because it's only when all of our life, every part, the parts that we're comfortable offering, the parts that we are scared to dive into, the parts that we don't want to confront, it's only when we offer all of that before the face of Jesus that we become whole that we become truly human like him. And so James is gonna write about a broad spectrum of things. Punchy, quick, 54 imperatives. He writes about the power of words and righteous and unrighteous emotion and suffering and not being partial to people who have a lot and trusting God with sincere prayers and a faith that works, a faith that's visible and produces fruit and holding your plans loosely and not boasting in tomorrow and waiting patiently for Jesus to come back. And he applies Jesus's words 
and wisdom's voice to that and so much more. Why? Because he wants to bring every single part of our life out into the open before God that we might be made whole. We will discover if we have ears to hear, if there's any sort of appetite in our heart for the words of Jesus, if there's any sort of humility in our posture to the voice of wisdom, what we will discover in this book is we will discover parts of our life that need to change, that God wants to change. There will be moments throughout where what we'll see, we'll hear God saying, give me all of your life. Show me what's in both of your hands so that I can meet you and change you and encourage you and confront you so that we would not be a compartmentalized people or a fractured people, but we would become whole in the likeness of our Savior. Here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to pray and begin asking God to do that work in our life. Would you pray with me? And just right where you are, invite you to talk to God. Would you give thanks for, for God's word? Thank you, God, that you've made yourself knowable. Would you give thanks for our brother James, our brother in Christ? That in his, in his letter, we are reminded of the unparalleled virtue and character of our Lord. In his life, we're reminded of the kindness of Jesus to meet us right where we are. And then friends, would you just ask that as we spend the next few months in this book, words of Jesus, the voice of wisdom. That God would give us the kind of heart that is eager to offer all of our life. That we would say now, in preparation of, of hearing all that you're gonna say about suffering and wisdom and, and money and speech, that we would just say, we, we want to be the kind of people that hold out both of our hands to you, God, because only you can make us whole. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Jesus, you are wonderful, beautiful, trustworthy, good, and true. And we worship you, and we need you. So would you use the letter written by your younger brother to invite us into deeper waters with you? So you hear me pray. Amen.